Hey there, lovely souls. I'm your host, Allison Toth, and I want to give you a warm welcome to Wishing You Wellness, the podcast where mental health meets spirituality. When it comes to rock bottom, I've been there more than once, and I know what it's like to wake up daily to mental health struggles. On this podcast, I share insight and stories to help motivate and inspire you and to help you feel less alone in this. In Wishing You Wellness, we talk inner child healing, mindset shifts, radical self-love, the art of intentional living, and so much more. Think of me as your mental wellness bestie. If you're ready to step into your power and change your life, just hit play. Hello, you guys. Welcome back to another week of the Wishing Wellness podcast. I am so, 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 so excited for today's episode because I'm actually bringing on a long, long time friend. We actually met. I want to tell you guys the story of how we met. I don't normally do this, but I feel like her and I have one of those stories that just deserves to be shared with the universe. So flashback to when I'm like 17 years old in high school, I am like looking for a roommate for college next year. And I get on this group page and I connect with this girl and we just have like everything in common. We are like sharing music. We are like vibing. We're talking about all of our loves and our love stories. And we're just like, oh my gosh, we need to hang out sometime. And we're like, yeah, maybe one day we'll meet up, whatever. So spring break comes along at my high school. And I don't really have a lot of friends at my high school. Like not for real. I have like a couple homies, but mostly I'm kind of just like doing my thing at this point. And this girl's like, what if we like traveled somewhere? And I was like, yeah, what if we did? Like, we've never met, but what if the first time we met, we went to a beach or something? And she was like, let's do it. So yeah, when I was 18 years old, I hopped into a car with a person I'd met one time for like 20 Complete years. stranger. Complete stranger. Like, a stranger. And we drove to Gulf Shores together and we had the best fucking time. Like we had the most we amazing did. trip. Like it was literally like a 13 hour car ride down too. And we were like, it was such a vibe like there was never a point where I was like oh my gosh I can't believe I've done this I have made a mistake there was never a point I was we were all in from the get-go having such a great time yeah so needless to say you guys we have a vibe and an energy and I feel like this is going to be one of those episodes where I eventually just have to be like okay we're out of time we have to stop because her and I I feel like could fire back and forth all day. And so you guys, I would like to introduce you to my lovely friend, Peyton Cope. We have been friends since literally 17 or 18 years old. Like yeah. baby, we've gone through so many phases together. We've been through highs together, lows together, periods of closeness, periods of separation. And now she is here in the recording studio with me. So Peyton, I would love for you to just introduce yourself a little, take up some space, tell my listeners a little bit about like where you're from, what you do, what lights you up, just anything that feels good. Okay. Hey, everybody. My name, as Allison said, is Peyton. Um, and yeah, we've been we've been friends for forever. And we were like such fast friends too. We were immediately just BFFs. Um, I am originally from Southern West Virginia, which is so random. Like every time I say that, people are like, what? You're from where? Especially now that I don't really have an accent. But it's so, so funny you I, said that, dude, because the other day I was watching TV and somebody said they're from West Virginia and I immediately thought of you. And then somebody else goes, people are from West Virginia. Like, I didn't know people actually were from there. And I was like, oh, Peyton. <laughs> few of us. Um, so I'm from Southern West Virginia. When I was 16, my family moved to Indianapolis, which is another random ass place to exist. <laughs> That was totally a wild time in my life. So I was only there for a couple of years and then it was time to go to college. 
So I ended up going to SEMO for my undergrad and my master's as well. I'm about to graduate in May with my master's in industrial organizational psychology, which is just like a really fancy term for somebody who just makes a company function better, whether that's work-life balance or making sure everybody's getting paid equally or diversity and inclusion pro procedures and policies like basically any type of organizational management is me. So that's what I've been doing lately is mm -hmm. doing my thesis and dissertation and everything. Um, as for what I like to do for fun, I love Cardinals games. We go, we've already been to one, my partner and I, and we'll probably be going to one next week. Um, and I live in Clayton, so it's a really walkable area. So I love to go for walks. I love to explore my city. I fucking love St. Louis. I am a St. Louis girly. Um, it has yeah. grown on me in such an indescribable way. <laughs> I am obsessed with the community and how much there is to do and how much free shit there is to do. Like, I've never lived somewhere where you could go to an art museum and look at art for free. Bam, bam. Every, every day if you wanted to or walk into a zoo for free just to go see the, like I literally went there the other day to see the bears and then I, I left. say this dude I say this all the time before I moved to Death Valley I was so like I hate St. Louis there's not enough here and then living in the middle of the desert I was like hmm I love it here and I also love St. Louis like St. Louis actually has so much more than I was giving it credit for and so the second time coming back and living here for a little while I had so much more appreciation and I have this like yeah. fucking beautiful view of the city from my balcony. And I'm just like, you do have a beautiful view. I love this city. This city is yeah. amazing. And like when I tell people when I'm traveling that I'm from St. Louis, they're like, Ugh, St. Louis. And I'm like, honestly, though, if you're not from there, you don't know a single thing about it. And it's so funny no. to hear me of all people defending Missouri. Can we just <laughs> take a moment to talk about the group? Okay, Missouri, St. Louis, two different things. <laughs> Yeah, that's an also a very good point. In Illinois, very different thing. Where I'm from, my small ass town, it is beautiful, but will I ever live there? No, 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 I won't. Having been to that town many times, I would never go to It's got a beautiful lake. Shout out to Lake Carlisle. You are beautiful. You are magical. I just need Absolutely. less cornfields and more humans. It's nothing Absolutely. personal. It's personal preference here. So Peyton, Today we are going to talk about, I'm thinking a lot of, sh a lot of stuff. It's going to just randomly kind of go through different avenues. But what I would like to start out with is just kind of like questions about how you deal with your own things that come up on your journey with mental health. So as you're appealing, as you're processing, what has kind of helped you along the way? Because the transition for me from college to adult has been so gnarly. And I don't know if you can resonate. Yeah. It's been gnarly. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and so what, what kinds of things or what kinds of hobbies or like coping strategies, like what gets you through? What gets you by? Oh my Lord. Um, so for the listeners that don't know, <laughs> I was trained to be a classical ballerina for the first 19 years of my life. That was basically all I did. Um, by the time I was 12, I was in the ballet studio six hours a day, six days a week. Um, so I have had a very interesting journey in that I entered college already ready to be a professional dancer. And with my, I went to college for, you know, for the experience. And then I got to college and I realized like, 
how much the shelter of only doing ballet and only being in the ballet environment because I was homeschooled had impacted me. So I got to college and all these other people had like figured shit out. And I, I had never been in the classroom before. I had never had to get up in the morning and go to school in my life. And because of who I am as a person, I was like, I have to be perfect all the time. Nobody can know that I'm struggling. Nobody can know that I don't know what's happening. Nobody can know, nobody can know, nobody can know. And so that's like my first semester of freshman year. I am like working my ass off, but have no idea what's going. Yeah. Um, or the break between first semester and second semester, uh, we had um, some really awful family things happen. And my nephew um, was diagnosed with cancer and ended up passing away within like a month and a half of each other. And that, destroyed everything like all my mental health I had already been struggling with an eating disorder since I was 12 I had already been struggling with depression and anxiety but experiencing a loss that was so monumental and so unexpected in so many ways just like took me apart as a person I don't even know how to describe like what's happened to me in that time it was dark. Um, and I remember. It was dark. Knowing and I, loving you and being so worried. And it was hard for people to love me at that point because I was so angry. I was so unhappy. I was so depressed. And I just, and all of those things that had been impacting me from the first semester where I, I, I needed this perfection. I needed to be on it all the time. Those were still happening. I was still experiencing all those feelings on top of just being completely decimated by an experience of grief. And on top of all that, I was in a friend group at the time that was just, we were all toxic for each other in different Mm -hmm. ways. I'm not going to say that I was a victim because I definitely wasn't. I was just as much of a perpetrator of this abusive cycle, but we all played parts in that. So all of this happening, just, I didn't have an identity from like 19 to 21. So I have really, I would say over the past four years, just had to completely deconstruct what I thought about myself and rebuild myself with a new sense of who I am as a person. I am not a dancer anymore. That was a really big change that I I left my ballet career behind forever. Just got up one day and was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not happy and I quit. (laughs) That's so huge though. Like to listen to your intuition and to actually follow it without like stopping and being like, Oh, well maybe we could just like dance a little less. You being like, no, what I need in this moment. We can always come back later. Let's do this now. Yeah. And I think that that is one of the things about me as a person that has benefited my journey because once I, I, I have such a capacity for kindness and for patience. I, such a I'd like di- you can dig in that well for a really long time but once you hit the bottom I'm I don't have it anymore like I let it go and I I let go of friendships that way I've just been like you know what this is not this is not serving me this is not serving you I'm done like and that it wasn't I was so unhappy I can't even begin to describe to you the deep feelings of just true hatred of yourself like to deep down in your heart think that you are worth nothing 
you know? And I want to pretend to not know that feeling, but that would be bullshit. I'm so familiar you know, with it. You know, and it, it was, it was coming from so many places and I was making so many changes in my life at the time, but the biggest one was letting go of the abusive and toxic relationship I had with ballet and being like, this is, I love it. I love it with everything in me. I want to be a ballerina for the rest of my life, but I can't. If I want to survive, if I want to live a life, I have to let it go. Like I can't, I can't have a career that's also an obsession is basically where that thought process came out. <laughs> full body chills. I'm just sitting here like chills after chills. Like, oh, this is so fucking juicy. Wild because I didn't talk to anybody about those feelings that I was having. I didn't mention to anyone that I was thinking about dropping my major. I didn't mention, to, you know, like literally the semester before I was the poster and the program and I was on billboards and I was in four pieces and I was an understudy for two more. I was doing everything. I was like at the top of my fucking game, but it wasn't enough and it was never going to be enough ever. What so is- I, what what in ballet was like the most triggering part I imagine body image right because I can only yeah. imagine you shoved into a tiny Leo can be very just like you're under yeah. a fucking magnifying glass yeah I I think I was already no matter if I had been in ballet or not I think I was already predisposed to having an eating disorder my mom has disordered eating pathology and just who I am as a person you know when we talk about an eating disorder it's a behavioral disorder it's so um it's very different from a lot of mental illnesses that we talk about because you can almost compare anorexia to addiction in a lot of ways um so I don't want to like put all the blame on my teachers and the environment and the culture very big part very big part but I think the way that I took in stimuli as a young person and the way that I processed the things that were being said to me and my own self was just like, that was how I coped was I wanted, I have always wanted to be perfect, literally my whole ass life. (laughs) And once I figured out that the skinnier I was, the more people liked me, it was like, Oh, well, that's a way to be perfect. You can be the skinniest in the room. That's, and that's so horrible. That's so toxic to have that type of attitude about anybody. Like I can, the I fact that I looked, that. looked at other people and compared how skinny I was to somebody else, that is so unhealthy and so harmful to myself and to others. And I'm so proud of the work I've done in that. But for years, it was like, well, if you're the skinniest person in the room, you're like the best person in the room. And that was kind of, I measured my worth in how skinny I was, which is just like so fucked up and was so hard to realize that that was what I was doing. (laughs) I feel like I can really relate to this, but with productivity and with being like a performer, like my whole life, I was just praised for being performative and over the top and dramatic. And like, Mm -hmm. I grew to associate associate being in the spotlight and like performing for people and entertaining and engaging with people 24 seven as my worth. And so then, as I got older, I was like, my God, wait a second. I don't have to be making everybody laugh and like telling all of my secrets. I don't have to be overdoing it to get people to like. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of my romantic relationships really play as a young person. I, I loved boys. 
Woo! I love you guys. We did. <laughs> we would sit for like six hours on FaceTime and go through our crushes, the maybes, the yeses, the ones that we could marry, the ones we could never. Red flags all over the place. Like, why? And do you remember that time in your life too, when like you didn't know anything about love or what was healthy, but neither did your friends. So you would go to your friends and be like, Hey, I need advice on this guy. And everyone's toxic asses would be like, yes. One of my favorite memories from college. And it's kind of funny now because obviously like Cyan and I, you know, we're going to get married, love lives, everything. But when we first started dating, you know, everything could go perfectly. And I remember being kind of upset at him and I was talking to one of my friends and I was like I just don't know what to do like I don't think I'm gonna sleep with him until he makes up for this or something like that and the friend goes well you know dick is dick (laughs) I took that as advice and was like no you're right I now should I have been withholding sex instead of communicating absolutely not Love but it was just like, you know, like that attitude of like almost being blase about your friend's love lives instead of like really digging deep into, because I do the, did the same thing. Like, like, hey, I noticed that you're different when you're around them or hey, like I noticed that they're not very nice to you. Like no one ever said that to me, but my boyfriends were so mean. I was the master of it. I was the master of my friends would come to me and they would tell me about their men. I love to be like, dump him. I was the dump him girl. And I was just like, leave him, leave him. And girls would come to me with like very like typical to be expected relationship problems. And my unhealed version of myself would be like, no, 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 get out of there. Personality ass was like, get out of here. I'm like, nope, move on to the next one. Absolutely not. He forgot. (laughs) He forgot it was your two month anniversary. Absolutely not. Like it was just coming from such a place of me being unhealed and me having relationship issues. And like, yeah. So I think that no one has bad intentions when they're giving that like shitty advice. And he meant it as like, go get you some. Like who the fuck cares how he's acting? Like get some. And I, at the time I appreciated that advice. That's just what I thought I needed. But I think that that attitude of my friends and also the way that romantic relationships treated me, I was absolutely put myself in the position to be treated like an object mm-hmm. by every single relationship I had before Cyan. Like that was a really big part of my experience with my eating disorder was learning that I'm a person and not like an object for people you know like and that's such a weird statement but if you like think about it 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 does make sense um and I understand that feeling so well because I have so much with just finding my worth in relationships through what I can Mm -hmm. offer with my looks and like how much I can overcompensate and in a lot of my past relationships I've overcompensated for like the lack of connection and the lack mm-hmm. of communication with just sex and just like yeah. being hypersexual and distracting and like yeah where those like good fruit fruit filled relationships no <laughs> and the relationship I was in before Sci- I met Cyan was like the <laughs> well we're talking like when I said that I had to- I wasn't the victim, but I also wasn't just the abuser. My relationship before Cyan was like, I don't know what we were doing to each other. We should have just let it go. (laughs) We spent 10 months back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And my sexuality was a huge part 
of how I coerced and manipulated him. And I did that shit with Cyan when we first started dating and he was not having it. He was like, I hate the way you act. Like when you act like this, <laughs> you are clingy, but also distant, but also like way too into me, but also not into me. And that, like, I don't understand what's going on. And that was such- attachment, baby. <laughs> first wake up call, like truly the first time anybody had said, why do you treat people this way? Why do you treat yourself this way? No one had ever confronted me about that. And I hadn't been treating people in that space of time I had spent the last year treating people very unkindly and no I and I'm not saying it's other people's responsibility because it's definitely not and I, I it being pointed out to you isn't enough you have to do the work right but I think that it would have been so helpful as a young person to have some support from somewhere you know and so to go back to your very original question like what on my journey has helped the most finding a community that truly took takes care of me holds me accountable that is a huge part of my friendships now that's like my number one requirement for a friendship is I'm going to hold you accountable in the kindest way I possibly can but I need you to hold me accountable I need you to communicate with me just as much as I want to communicate with you and um, I think that that attitude change has changed my life. Oh, that's so powerful and a hundred percent relatable. I was thinking the other day, if I would have found this community that I'm a part of on Instagram and the life coach world and the podcast, if I would have found this at 18, I could have saved so many people, the bullshit that I put them through, because I feel like every time you say something about like the person that you were and how you used to be kind of shitty to people, it resonates so hard because I used to be the biggest piece of shit to everyone I knew. And it wasn't because I wanted to be malicious or evil. Yeah. Just like I was so unhealed and had no idea how to love in a healthy way. I'd never seen it. I was like, and I also had no idea. I wasn't help loving in an unhealthy way. Like I thought the problem was other people. Bing, 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 bing. I always talk about the day I was in therapy and my therapist at this point had been working with me for like two years. And I looked at him and I was like, do we think, do we think that this could possibly be a me thing and not my ex? And I, I just watched him like light up and he was like, yes, yes, yes. She got there. She got there. Oh my gosh. It's the most powerful and empowering realization you can have to go oh shit I'm also the bad guy in a lot of people's stories I also have things that I need to address and I can also show up in a way better way for those around me and myself yes yes and I can recognize that people were abusing me and also recognize that my response to abuse was to abuse back oh you know Mm. you know like that's what it was that it was just a cycle and it was everybody in my life and it was Really, I mean, because of the way I treated myself. As soon as I started making the conscious effort to just be kinder to myself in like the most like basic way possible, just just stop hating on yourself all the time inside yourself. Just stop, which is so much easier said than done. But baby steps. It's truly you know that accountability. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
it's taking one step forward and being like, okay, our first, our first goal is we're not going to speak super negatively about ourselves. That doesn't mean that we have to wake up tomorrow saying I'm a goddess, I'm a queen, I'm a princess. We can just say, I like myself. I'm okay with myself. And acknowledging and being honest with myself and other people when I'm not getting those goals, when I'm going through a period of darkness, when I'm going through a tough time, that has been a maturity thing. I think more than anything, like growing up, I finally figured out how to be a little more open and vulnerable. Um, Because I loved to be like performatively vulnerable before. But again, it was almost like a manipulation coercion thing more than it was like a, I'm actually telling you how I feel or how this is impacted me. Um, You know, like, and you know what I mean? Like you can, you can tell people you feel one way and it be true, but it not be like deep down the way that you processed or experienced something, you know? thousand percent. I remember like the very beginning of my journey with talking openly about my bipolar, my BPD. And I would just like tell these stories, but the narrative would be like, and my diagnoses are why I did that. And that's my excuse. Uh And that's my scapegoat. And that's my reason. And then I realized Mm -hmm. at a point, I was like, okay, this is feeling not only performative, but also dishonest because I am the root of my, you know, Mm -hmm. issues. Yeah the toxic decisions that I've made. And so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For real. (laughs) It's, and it's really like a fun game that you start to play with yourself. Like how can I call myself out when I notice myself being manipulative or when I notice myself trying to coerce people, every time we talk about being manipulative, I'm like, I feel that in my soul. I have had former friends talk about me having narcissistic tendencies and just me like really being caught up in my own shit and that it was so real at a point in my life where like all Mm -hmm. I thought about was myself and that often led to me manipulating people because then I could get what I want and that doesn't make it okay it is still Mm -hmm. very very fucked up but I think that when you understand why you do it then you have a better chance at like re rewiring it and like changing yeah exactly and I think that like my I wasn't so much it was more that not so much I was focused on myself but that I was so focused on what people thought about me and perceived of me. are you a people you know, pleaser like, a recovering people pleaser like I've always like kind of been like because I, I I'm not but also like I am <laughs> I think as a woman we're just kind of like you know made to be that way so it's kind of hard to be like I'm a recovering people pleaser when I really just think I was socialized to be a woman society kind of threw you into that cage yeah like because I don't really hear any men being like I'm a recovering people pleaser I don't really hear that wow. I don't hear men being called people pleasers either so to me that's just like a a socialization of being a woman thing um Ooh, that is so juicy that's so real mm-hmm. I'm but I, once a week you got a lot of insight okay there. bet I Heike would love to start a podcast if I had the time girl <laughs> add it to your like next year like in the next maybe we'll gotta get this master's first oh I can't even imagine how much work that is and so how do you balance all of this stuff how do you keep your cool through it all I don't <laughs> I love you. This is the energy I want on wishing you wellness. I don't. I, so I work 50 hours a week. 
I'm in a full-time master's program. I did an empirical research study for my thesis and dissertation. Um, uh, and I have like a partner and a home and dogs and a life. And I don't balance it. There are many weeks where um, work is like just white knuckling through and I'm like doing homework anytime I can. And then there are weeks where I don't see any friends. And there are weeks where I'm so depressed that I come home and just cry. Mm-hmm. Or there, I mean, I had, I, I've been in recovery now from my eating disorder. I would say three or four years give or take but in December I had a pretty bad relapse um and it was it was pretty bad I didn't eat for like four or five days and since then it's kind of been like a process of being really gentle with myself and trying to like just get through because I've just been I mean even once you are like back on your recovery path with an eating disorder it takes a really long time because it's a behavioral disorder to get out of those patterns of, and I'm sure you know this in a relapse, like you might be on the path to recovery and be like, okay, like I'm back. I'm okay. I'm not going to like get up tomorrow and starve myself again. But at the same time, I want to. Oh yeah. That's the thing (laughs) with addiction and having any kind of an addictive personality, even though I am clean today and yesterday and the last however many days, there is not a day that I don't think about it. There is not. I try to be so transparent about the fact that like, so at the beginning of my addiction recovery, I was very much just like, Oh, I'm in recovery. Like I'm better now. It's like, I didn't realize that part of the recovery process is relapse and it's inevitable at a point and you're going to have to go through that. And so the first few times that I relapsed, I really spun out and like hit rock bottom because I was just like, holy fuck. Like I thought I was done. I thought we had made it through this. I didn't know that we could still go backwards. And then this last time in December, when I relapsed, I really went down the rabbit hole, but January came around and I was like, okay, now we start over. Now we start yeah. Like we get up, we dust ourselves off. We apologize to the people we can, we let go of what we can't and we move forward. Cause that's what we have control over. Once I started, stopped thinking about recovery as like a place you get to, and then you're just there and started thinking about it as like, because it took me a, a while to acknowledge the fact that I'm going to have an eating disorder for the rest of my life. Like this isn't that's something the that's the hardest thing to make. Like, peace with. Yeah. Like I did, if I had fucking known when I was 13 years old, that I would be 25 and be so upset that I had engaged in these behaviors for so long. I would. Yeah. That's the one. later when I, I'm spending every day like working towards being better and taking care of myself and it, I I really wanted when I started this recovery journey for me to hit a place and it to be over and I, that's never going to happen I could be 50 years old and have a relapse and exactly. and accepting and making peace with the journey <laughs> has been a really big part of me accepting the fact that I relapse sometimes and that it's all it's okay like you don't want it to happen you want to put in all the safeguards for it not to happen and you want to be careful and conscious of when you're approaching a relapse but it is not a moral failing mm. or it does not really erase 
what happened, like all the months of recovery before that, it doesn't erase that. It just means that, you know, there's something, something triggered you or there was something, something in your life that caused that, that behavioral instinct to just flip back on, you know? That's been such a helpful mindset shift too for me. It's been very comforting mm-hmm. because I remember back in December losing a friend because of my relapse and my choices during that relapse. It really mm-hmm. felt like, oh my God, this one relapse and I lose everything. And I remember having to tell myself, yeah. Allison, this does not negate or undo the last however many months you've been doing pretty fucking good and you've been pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. So like, don't let this one fallout just define you because that's yeah. that's how the addiction cycle keeps us stuck is because once you Mm -hmm. relapse, the self-loathing kicks back in and then you hop right back on and you're using or restricting or binging or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you have that sense of control. It's all this like attempt to feel like we have any morsel of control over our addiction when we don't. (laughs) None whatsoever. (laughs) Sorry, you guys, if you're looking for like a cheerful, uplifting episode. (laughs) Well, hey, we're in recovery. That's what that's. We're keeping it real. We're doing inspiring but with a very, very vulnerable and authentic undertone. <laughs> okay. And so Peyton, a little bit about the, the whole, like, how do I, how do I put this into words? So the community that you were a part of in a former life, you feel like that community <laughs> in a former world in a former existence, do you feel like that community was in a sense, kind of holding you back and not because of the people that were in it or like Mm -hmm. things that were happening, but do you feel like there was only so far that you could grow in that environment before you needed to kind of like go to a new one? I'm kind of thinking of like a fish in a tiny little fish bowl and it's like thriving and it's doing good. But then one day it's like a big fish and it's like, oh fuck, this is like a tiny bowl. Yeah. I think the dance major living on river campus, which for the listeners that don't know, um, if you are an art major of any kind at SEMO, they have an entirely separate campus for those people. And they have dorms. And that's where I lived the first two years of college. And so you're living in the community in which you're working, in which you're eating, in which, you know, it was just, it was very like, I don't even want to say it, but it was very like, inbred, but like, <laughs> Yes, okay. And so I, it wasn't their fault, the friends necessarily, but I, I was, I wanted to be more than a dancer. Mm. I wanted to, because you know, being homeschooled kindergarten through twelfth grade, and then going to live on a campus where there are only other artists, that's still very sheltered. Yeah, it's not really any different. Like I think about it, like River Campus. Oh, over on River Campus, like they're doing their own thing, they're living their own life. Yeah, and it was like not good. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, I think that any French group I would have been in on River Campus would have eventually felt that way. I think I really, really needed to not be a dancer anymore and to not shelter myself in the world of dance anymore. Um, so like my sophomore year, I dropped my dance major. Um, I joined a sorority and I threw myself into main campus shit. And junior year, I moved off campus with main campus friends 
And I, my world just got bigger. Like the, the fishbowl thing is a very good metaphor because I just got tired of living in that little world. I was ready to live in the world. The big tank. Yeah. Like I would, I, the world I had created for myself was not serving me anymore. I needed to be out in the real world with other people. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that's so real. Dude, you just have a lot of very amazing stories. And I like how you use the parts of you that a lot of people could be ashamed of or embarrassed of. And you take those and you highlight and show people like, this is where I was and this is where I am now. And I actually healed and grew and changed a lot as a person. I think that's amazing. And I'm really trying to push wishing you wellness more and more into that vulnerable direction. Because when I first Mm -hmm. started the podcast, full transparency, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I just copied every fucking trend and fad that I saw. I was like five steps to manifesting. And it was just like (laughs) so clearly not aligned with who I am and like what I believe in. Like, yes, I love manifestation. It's cool. But is it cool enough that I have five steps? Absolutely not. I have like half a step what would be more applicable or more like a line for me is five tips for dealing with bipolar disorder when you're an entrepreneur or five tips for managing your emotions as somebody with borderline. And like, I'm finally starting to shift wishing you wellness towards that. And it feels good to have people coming on with messages that actually like align with my mission. Like every single thing you say, I'm like, Ooh, I want to dive so deep into that because that is so just like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> Like I'm all about the journey and the growth and you're doing it. I think that um, I didn't really, I I did not talk about anything about myself until I went through that loss and I started posting about grief because I didn't, you know, losing someone as a young person is hard enough, but losing a nephew that you basically raised while you're in your freshman year at college and literally no one in Cape Girardeau even really knows you like you've been there six months and they're all 19 years old 90% of them have never experienced loss of any kind like I had friends who had never hadn't hadn't even lost a grandparent kind of thing that's where I'm at you know and I I was alone (laughs) like no one related to my experiences at all and so I started posting on Facebook the way I was, I started writing posts and they honestly, looking back, they were a little much. They were a little too honest, a little too raw, a little too vulnerable. Oh, I feel that. I feel that. You know, I, I really uh, leaned into my, to exposing myself. <laughs> but mm-hmm. as time went on, I started to realize that there were people resonating with that message and really I think there there are some people that have really, really appreciated me talking about my grief in that way. And once I realized that and how helpful it is for people to see someone who has gone through the worst grief and has learned how to move through it in a healthy way, you know, I think one of my biggest assets as a friend is I can help you grieve. I can yeah. I can teach you how to fucking grieve. And I can teach you how to do it the adaptive and the healthy way so that you're feeling your feelings, but you're not in a chronic space of grief, Mm. you know? And that's like, not something that people do. Like people don't know how to grieve. 
That's so a lot to bring to a friendship. That's a lot to bring to the table. Just the ability to sit with people without trying to fix them or, you know, yeah. Because I struggle with that. I struggle with somebody coming to me for advice and I'm like, oh, what can we do to make it better? And they're like, I just want to be mm-hmm. heard, Allison. Literally just sit yeah. there and listen. Like And sometimes I feel like with grief specifically, we know that there are tools out there, but we one don't know how to use those tools and two don't believe those tools for will work for us because mm. our grief is so unique. That relationship was so unique. It was so different. Nobody knows, but that's just like not really true. Like there are patterns and ways to predict the way that grief will occur. And, oh, you know, yeah. there are, there's like what yeah. the steps of grief or something like that. Oh, so this is really interesting. And this is totally a tangent. So we don't have to go long, but my junior year, I took a class called the psychology of death and dying. Okay. And it was a whole class on grief and it was so much fun. And a lot of what I know is from that class. I learned a lot about constructive grieving in that class, but the, the stages of grief that you're talking about is from Kubler Ross, who is like a big grieving person. Right. And the interesting thing about those steps that we just like slap on to any grief that we have is that she wrote those specifically for chronically ill people. Like those are the stages of grief that chronically ill people go through when they're either like someone who gets cancer, for instance, they would go through the five stages of grief over getting cancer, whether whatever that outcome is. Right. And so like in normal society, we've just like labeled that as like the grieving process. And I think that like, that's how I looked at it. I was like, okay, I'm not following this the right way. Like I'm not, I don't know, like, it's like anger. And I can't remember what they are. But I, it was really strange, as I'm going through grief and didn't know anything about it to like, not feel like I fit into that box at all. And then I took that class. And my professor was like, well, only some people fit into that box. And it was like, Oh, so this isn't the way I'm supposed to grieve. Right. So that's just like a random fun fact for you. I was going to say, I actually loved that tangent. That was amazing. It made me think of, uh, so one of the hotlines I work for is the disaster distress relief hotline. And there's like a few stages to any large natural disaster, like the disillusionment stage. And when people, there's like a hero phase where everybody comes together and they're like working together as a community. And then there's like a fallout. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. That is a process of grief for sure. Do you think that we go through the grief process when we lose like a friendship or relationship and they're not dead? Oh, I think you can go through a process of grief for just about anything, Mm. even like losing an object. Like if you had like, let's say like a a blanket or something from your childhood that you have kept in your bed with you since then, like, and you lost it, you would grieve losing that object. Um, Children go through grief when they lose their transitional objects, like a passy or a lovey or whatever. Um, so I think you can grieve over just about anything. Anytime, anywhere. That's why it's important for us to like, I guess, educate ourselves on it. I've yeah. been very fortunate and also a little bit unfortunate in that I haven't lost anybody yet. And so mm-hmm. that's beautiful because I've had so many awesome years with people, but it's also scary because I have a lot of loss to face. I have- yeah 
three grandmas and two grandpas alive and I have both Mm -hmm. parents and a sibling and just like all of the loss in the future makes me very nervous and scared I think that not having experience in grief is scary because I look at people who lose a parent and they you know continue showing up for work and I'm like I could never like when I lose my mom someone's gonna have to come like put water into my mouth for a month because I'm just gonna be a mess that's so like I feel like a lot of people who have never experienced loss feel that way but the crazy thing is like once when you go through that lot like you don't have a like you people you would think people would be gentle with you (laughs) and like be understanding but people really don't care beyond like the very initial like I'm so sorry for your loss and that was something I really had to grapple with when I lost Luke was the fact that not only nobody related to me but everybody was sick and fucking tired of hearing about it. Everybody was tired of me being depressed and sad. Everyone was tired of me having breakdowns every week. Like, and that was a whole nother thing to take on, like being embarrassed about my grief process. But I think every, I've, I've had five big losses in my life. They were all different. They all had different grieving processes some were better than others what I learned you know I lost Luke and then a year later I lost my grandfather to cancer as well and the grieving process was so different because I I knew what I was looking at and so I think that that's almost that's a very valid fear like you don't know what you don't know you you don't know how loss is going to impact you or the loss of that person you know like it when god forbid you lose your grandparents each loss is going to feel so unique and different and that can be so scary and hard to face because I like to have a plan I like to have know what's happening and when it's happening and so it's really hard for me to kind of surrender to my feelings in that way I struggle a lot with that too with just wanting to know what's going to happen next and how I'm going to feel tomorrow and the idea of grief and having something so astronomically out of my control is just a very overwhelming thing I'm like oh gosh yeah and I've also been very hyper exposed the last 10 11 months to death and to oh yeah sorrow and I've noticed recently at work that I've had to cut back my hours and it's not that I don't love 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 my job but lately, especially, there have been calls that are just really staying with me after the shift and just like a lot of, yeah, a lot of grief that I'm carrying with people and a lot of fear. And so I've just had to really start pouring intention and say, okay, how can I take care of myself? As soon as I get off this shift, how can I forget about the 45 minute call I just had listening to a tornado survivor vividly tell me the details about living through a tornado? Because one of, the hard- so heavy. Ooh, one of the hardest parts of the hotline is, yeah, I want to hold space for people and let them share however they're feeling, even if that's scary. But sometimes mm-hmm. I'm hearing stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is <sighs> triggering. Ooh. And I'm sitting yeah. in my breathing exercises with them because it can be heavy stuff to sit with. And I imagine grief, you know, is something that falls into those categories. Oh yeah. It can be triggered by anything. One time I saw a like, I was driving down the road and the car in front of me had like a toy in the back window that Luke had and I had to pull over. Like, and that was like two years after he was gone. It is so random and so unpredictable. And I can imagine the experience of holding space for other people's grief that you don't really, that's not your own in any way, shape or form because you're not personally connected to them. I feel like, like, I wouldn't know where to put that grief. 
almost, you know, like it would be hard for me to know where that grief goes because I would feel it because I'm an empathetic person. Like, where do you, so what do you do? Where, where do you put that grief? Mm, like the grief that I hold space for others for basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, that's such a good one. Honestly, movement is the answer for a okay. while. I was pretty sedentary with my job and I just found myself feeling so just like buzzing with all of this energy, this like negative energy. I didn't know where to put it. And so I started going to spin classes and yoga and just being able to move my body and take my brain out of whatever I was hearing before this and just bring it into the present moment has been very, very hard for me, but also like really, really powerful. Uh, I struggle with staying present. It's very hard for me. Meditation. I'll be the first one to admit I can't meditate. If you hear me preaching about meditation, I can lead meditations for others. I cannot myself meditate very well. And I know (laughs) my life coaches are probably listening to this right now, like wanting to slap me. And they're like, girl, you can't speak like that. And it's like, no, transparently, my meditation is going to yoga and being present. That's my meditation or going to spin class or going for a run. That's that's my I really envy that relationship with movement. I'm trying so hard to find that for myself. I think that when you focus on like, like when you go into, uh, here's what I do. Here's what I do. So if I have a trigger come up, say I want to use Xanax, I want to use pills. I will immediately in that moment be like, where else can I get that calm feeling? Well, yoga class gives me that calm feeling. And so in that moment that I'm feeling the trigger and the cue, I immediately will go to a class. I have a gym around the block that is like always doing classes. And then after a while, my brain has started to associate good feelings with yoga and that oh. was hard to do. It's, I'm training myself like a dog, basically. <laughs> and so now when I'm like feeling super hypomanic and just like have too much energy, I've trained myself go to spin class because in spin class, you can go so hard. You can act like a fucking lunatic and nobody can see you because it's dark and there's EDM blasting. And so my body now understands when we go to spin class, we leave feeling more relaxed and like that energy has kind of transmuted out of us and like somewhere else and yeah movement is something that was not always easy for me I used to very much detest movement but now I'm getting to a space where I'm like okay this actually helps me I I dance all the time like when I was we were playing a game the other day me and my best friend Molly and Zion and um one of the questions was like if you it basically like pretend you're another person in the group like how do they move how do they act and molly got up and started like dancing around and i felt so called out but <laughs> like i move like that all day and i love taking walks but i found that my relationship with working out is so enmeshed with my sense of self and my eating disorder I'm working really hard right now to separate those things because I want to work out I want to be strong I want to be strong so badly like I'm so tired of being little I I don't want to I want an ass I want arms Mm -hmm. I want I want to be like someone looks at me and like oh she can pick up that box spin class girl my ass (laughs) not been since I started spin class and I was literally going to ask you that do you feel that the reason you're a little bit resistant toward the movement was because at one point that was like, did you ever like over-exercise with your disorder eating? Really? My really big thing is just not eating. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is really like my biggest behavior. Um, and like restricting like calorie counting, overweighing <laughs> that kind of thing. But 
I not, I didn't necessarily over exercise, but I used exercise to like push my goals with my eating disorder further. As a means to an end, you were like, yeah, almost, skinny. yeah, exactly. And so, and also the way that working out in the classical dance space is treated is a little different. Like you're not working out to be strong. You're working out to gain a certain aesthetic or at least the way my studio taught it. So like my ballet teacher would tell me like, your arms have the potential to be really big and bulky. So don't do any arm workouts. Yeah. And so for the first 20 years of my life, I never picked up a weight. Never, never. And that's so crazy. Like I should have been, if I wanted to work out, I should have been doing that, you know, but there were so many just complete and utter lies about the way that working out works or how I should work out that were preached to me. But it took a really long time for me to realize that I I didn't, I don't know how to work out the right way, the healthy yeah. way, the strong way. So I think my resistance is not knowing how it works because I want to be perfect at everything. Mm. And also just those those voices in the back of my head of all of those teachers that told me all of these things about my body and the ways that I could prevent those things from happening. Like, for instance, the shoulder thing. I carried that for so long. I don't have bulky shoulders. And if I did, that would be okay. Carol, this obsession with perfection is resonating with me so much. Like I've literally recently, as I've started my inner child healing journey, I've really shifted the focus to how can I just do shit without trying to be good at it? I went to karaoke the other night and I wasn't going to get on stage because I was like, no, I, I smoked and like my throat and I just like, I won't sound good. And everyone's like, Allison, it's fucking karaoke. Everybody sucks. That's the point of karaoke. But in my brain, I was like, no, I'm a performer. If I don't bring this house down, if people aren't giving me a standing ovation, then what was the point? And I'm like, I want to unlearn that. What kind of life is that where yeah. everything you do has to serve some big purpose? Literally. And I think because for so long, not only I, I wanted to appear perfect all the time, but the expectations that were placed on me by others were for me to appear perfect. Um, and so like, I wouldn't get up on stage for karaoke because not only would I be afraid of not appearing perfect, but I would feel that I knew that people would be judging me for my lack of perfection. I would be basically utterly convinced of it because in my past, People were very clear when they thought I wasn't being perfect and were very quick to point out all the ways that I lack. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for seeing the cause and effect there because I always look at my performative nature and my desire to be perfect and I'm like, I don't know where it came from, but like it sucks. So it's such mm-hmm. such a powerful thing to trace it back and be like, oh, at this point in my life, I felt like that's what was required for me to get my needs met and for me to receive validation and all the things we need. And it was it was from everybody. And I think one of those, I mean, that's, that's a lot of adults' problems. Like, a lot of adults abused me and treated me badly as a young person. And they should have known better. Yeah. But, like, my fucking mom had expected me to be perfect. And because I started presenting that from the get-go, it was, it felt, like, blaringly obvious anytime I failed. It was, like, well, Peyton always is always on top of her shit. Peyton is always 
you know, going above and beyond. Peyton is always, 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 always. And I felt like this huge pressure to always. Yeah. And I think the biggest, another big thing in my journey has been that there is no always. There is no perfection. It doesn't exist. It's just like moving forward, moving forward, moving forward and trying to keep that momentum going as far as you can. Yeah. <laughs> Full body chills again. This is a powerful episode. And I looked down, I was like, oh my God, it's already been an hour. <laughs> Yo, that's craziness. Cause it truly has felt like 20 minutes. So before we go, Peyton, I would love for you to share how my listeners can connect with you. Do you have an Instagram? Do you have a website? Do you have any way that they can reach out and say hello? Um, yeah, so the, I have a couple Instagrams, but the Instagram that I use the most is underscore Peytona, P-E-Y-T-O-N-A, beach underscore. Yes. Um, that's my Finsta, but that's the one that I actually use. <laughs> Why did I think it was something else? Did it used to be? <sighs> I have another one. It's like how Peyton Cope, which I guess is the, so you guys can also hit me up there. How Peyton Cope's. That's such a um, cute name. That could be your brand. Ah! If I ever write an autobiography, it's going to be How Peyton Copes. That's with so amazing. <laughs> Coping skills with Peyton Cope. I love it. Okay, before we pop off, I love to end with rapid fire. How do you feel about a quick little session? Amazing. Okay, you cut out a little bit. So in case you guys did not hear her, she said sh- she's down. No, she said, let's do it. I read her lips. She said, let's do it. Okay. So what is a book that has changed your life or the way that you think? Crush by Richard Sykin, which is a book of poetry. Amazing. Um, The Bridges of Madison County is the most romantic book I've ever read. And it is one of the most phenomenal books. And um, Love Letters to the Dead. That was a really good one for when I was grieving. Mm, Amazing. Okay. And what is your go-to snack when it's 3 a.m. you got the munchies you come into the you come to the fridge what are you grabbing <laughs> a tub of icing <laughs> <laughs> fuck i love icing so much it's so good or the um boulder canyon avocado oil salt and vinegar chip i can Ooh. eat a bag of those in one one sitting so can quick. you really because i would have holes in my mouth if i did that um i do have holes in my mouth and i do it anyway <laughs> Me with my flaming hot Cheetos. I'm like, this hurts so bad. I love it. Literally love it. Okay. If you, if you had a candle and it was, <laughs> sometimes I get so stupid with my rapid fire. I love it. If you had a candle that smelled like you, what would the smell be? The pink Johnson and Johnson lotion, like the baby lotion. Um, like fresh mountain air <laughs> and, and like a like a little bit of weed I was gonna say and like, like the smallest touch of <laughs> a baddie like a little one hitter is all <laughs> okay last one I love to ask this one if you had 24 hours you could spend it anywhere in the world with anybody doing absolutely anything where would you be who would you be with and what would you be up to I'll just say, so my partner and I are going on a trip to France next year. And so I would be in the French countryside with my partner 
reading beautiful <laughs> beautiful sounds very calming I, I need that energy in my life soon like a quick little, little quick little france trip i can't wait to see all of your outfits you guys peyton is a fashionista she i try oh my gosh i just remember there were times when we met where you were just giving like sexy what is the like a private school like sexy yeah that was definitely the vibe for a while oh you looked so good in that picture the other day I saw you had a little tie on I was like go girl oh yeah that was the uh theater and dance department porn party the porn party that was so fun every time I tell people I went to a porn party they're like and did you make porn I'm like well not like that no we dressed up like porn my porn star name was Eileen Dover (laughs) Mine, I was, uh, I dressed up in like a Harry Potter costume and I was moaning Myrtle. <gasps> I have to say that was like the best thing I've ever done. That's peak. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, really. That that night was peak Peyton. She did not give two shits about anything. Did anybody come up to you like, girl, can I slither in? <laughs> um, yes. Stop. I had like I had like three boys at that party who wanted to take me home that night. Hey. I picked the wrong damn one. But... Don't we always? I feel like that's that's the ending quote. Don't we always pick the wrong damn one? more. <laughs> we're making we're making progress. We're making money moves. We're changing out here. We are growing. We are yes, damn. So glad you guys got to tune in for a little bit of Peyton and I's story. There will definitely be a part two, likely a part three. And so tune back in for those. If you love this episode, feel free to give it a share on your story. You can tag myself, tag Peyton. If you really loved it, leave a rating and review. Those help us grow and reach more hearts and souls like yours. I'm not going to do some big, long outro because that was amazing. That was just like the best. We had so much fun. I hope you guys love this episode. And yeah, this has been real and raw as fuck and funny and exciting and sad and epic. This has been Wishing You Wellness. Mm-hmm.